Okay, so let's uh, catch everybody up. I'm going to run through some slides quickly, and then we'll get into some new material. Here we go. Remember, uh, as we're looking at the, the book of Revelation, I am encouraging us to not only focus on the details, on the who and the what and when, but also on the larger message of, that's being presented to us in this book. We don't want to miss the message because we're focusing on the details. Now, the details give us the message, and the, the way the details relate to one another help us to understand the message. So, um, I came up with drawing the parabolic curve. The details are the straight lines, but the message is the curve. And we want to see the curve when we get to Revelation. We, we want to do that in any book of the Bible. Uh, we want to see the wonder, the miracle of the message, not just the facts and the figures. Okay? And I know, I, I know we're excited, and I know um, we're uh, hearing people say, you know, this could be the end times, we're nearing the end times, things are preparing uh, for the end times. Yes. But let's get the message of the book. We're here to study the book. So let's hear God's voice. Let's understand the revelation of Jesus Christ that's in the book. Okay? I'm going to click quickly here. Okay. I handed this out to you uh, last week, I believe. How we read the revelation to John. We do it attentively. We do it with awe and worship. We read the book with anticipation of of the coming victory. We read the book with silent terror for mankind. We read the book with separation from fashionable wickedness, and the whole world will follow the Antichrist, except believers. We don't want to be part of the fashionable wickedness that's in our day, and we certainly don't want people in the tribulation to be part of that fashionable wickedness. We read the book with approval of the divine justice that's meted out upon apostate uh, people, upon the apostate world. We look to Jesus. We read the book to see Jesus. And we accept the invitation of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, comments or questions about that material? We're going to focus on that in just a moment, Linda. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay. As we continue to look at the overall presentation of the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, let's pick up uh, some descriptions of what the book is all about. So you see on the screen, the revelation to John is a fascinating literary and theological masterpiece. It portrays Christ as a complex protagonist in multiple visions, which highlight its, uh, his many roles. Now, yesterday, uh, Becky and David, Diana and I, uh, were at Denton Bible Church at the Faith and Science Conference. Um, and those guys, the, the presenters, especially the last presenter, 
uh, was on a freight train. I mean, he was moving. I mean, it, this was, uh, and Diana turned to me and she said, Kent, that's what it's like when you read those slides. Uh, it's too quick. Okay. So she's your best advocate. If, 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 <laughs> if you want me to change, talk to my wife. Okay. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> I, I hear her, but that doesn't mean I comply. Right. Is that, is that uh, what you're amen. saying? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm reading more slowly. Notice what the slide says, though. The book portrays Christ as a complex protagonist. When we read the Gospels, how do we see the Lord Jesus? We see him as the, the Messiah that's on hand, that's heralding the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. But tragically, his own people don't receive him. And so his um, opportunity to be the king is changed to the suffering servant role. And he suffers in behalf of all mankind to bring us uh, back to God, to reconcile us to God. He dies, he resurrects, and he ascends to heaven only to come back again when God the Father gives him the nod. Okay, so we understand that about the Gospels, but um, when we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see Jesus as a shepherd. We'll see him as a king. We'll see him as a, a slain lamb that is qualified to dispense judgment. Uh, we're going to see him in a number of roles, and we've talked about these already. But uh, the Lord Jesus is the personality of world history, past, present, and future. And we focus on him, and when we see him in all of his roles, we can appreciate this book, because this book is about Jesus. So, he opens a judgment scroll. He disciplines the world for its apostasy. He comforts the tribulation saints. <coughs> He is the Jewish child of destiny. He rides into battle to put down the insurrection of the world of men empowered by the devil. Let me quote Bauckham. Richard Bauckham wrote The Climax of Prophecy. This is an outstanding work on the book of Revelation. I don't agree with his eschatology, but boy, oh boy, does he understand the book of Revelation. And, you know, as discerning readers, we do that, don't we? Uh, we find somebody that has much to say. We appreciate what he says that we agree with. The other stuff, we say, well, that's okay. That's up to Mr. Bauckham or Dr. Bauckham. He can, he can have that opinion. Um, we, you know, and we can learn from people that we don't necessarily agree with all of, uh, in every aspect. Notice what he says. The Apocalypse of John is a work of immense learning astonishing, meticulous literary artistry, remarkable, creative imagination, radical political intrigue, and profound theology. Now, mind you, I don't think Bauckham is, is telling us that all of this originated with John. No, this was given to John from God through an angel in behalf of Christ. So it originates with God. And all of this literary artistry 
is God's doing. It's his masterpiece. It's not John's. John's receiving it. Okay, may I ask, did you, that previous uh, uh, description on the introduction, is that yours or yes. somebody else's? That's yeah, yours. that's, that's yes. yours. Yes. I'm, I've learned from other people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, Bacham says, among the major works of early Christianity in the New Testament, the revelation to John remains the Cinderella. What does he mean by that? Unappreciated. Yes, unappreciated. It's almost uh, lost, you know, not, uh, not given due attention. Now, for some of us, it, it has all of our attention, right? And uh, and we want to give our attention to it. For others, it's enigmatic. There are so many different ways to understand the book. At least there are many different ways that people have tried to use to understand the book. And so uh, we become befuddled and tripped up and we say, well, I don't know that I really can understand the book. Oh, yes, you can. If you can read, you, you can understand the book. Revelation means God is revealing something to us. He's given it to us to understand. Now, is it somewhat enigmatic? You bet it is. But that's part of the intrigue. It's part of the presentation. It's part of the curve. You know, it's part of the reception of the message. That you have to appreciate the artistry to really enjoy the whole thing. Okay, this is from Stefanovic. <clears throat> Whereas the Gospels give major copy to the passion of Christ, and rightly so, the Revelation shows the ascended and exalted Christ acting with universal authority over man and Demas, which culminates in the establishment of the promised Davidic kingdom. Because of this presentation of Christ, and the authority of God's throne room in heaven, readers and hearers are, what? Moved to virtuous lives. And I would add, moved to allegiance to Jesus. Moved to our loyalty to Christ as our Savior and the head of the church. We not only want to live virtuous lives, we want to be there. We want to be steadfast in our loyalty to Christ. And I think we'll talk about that as we get into chapters 2 and 3 with the messages uh, to the churches. But I think that's a major message that Christ gave to the churches. Be true to me. Forget all of those idols. Forget all of those false gods. Be true to me. We'll see that when we get there. Okay, now, Linda, let's enjoy the slide. You see... Christ is presented in, as a multiplex protagonist. He's a lot of different things. He's a lion. He's a lamb. He's a shepherd. He's a conqueror. Uh, we need to see him in all of those ways to appreciate the fullness of his person. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, Jesu Christu, um, that's, that's my Greek pronunciation, is the unveiling of his person, his position, his power, his preeminence. The book reveals Christ in a profound way to use, uh, to keep the literary feature going, the alliteration going there. The book presents Jesus in a profound way. 
People cannot, at least I would hope people could not dismiss the person of Christ when they read this book. They will. Be, <laughs> they've, they've done it with the Gospels. They pick and choose what they like of the Gospels and the other parts, the parts that, that uh, offend them, you know, they dismiss. But if we read the Revelation as it was given to us, we will be profoundly in awe of Jesus the Christ. Remember the visions? He's the head of the churches. He's slain, but the living lamb, worthy to dispense judgment. He's the lamb as comforting, uh, or yeah, the lamb as comforting shepherd to the tribulation saints. In chapter 7, he's the male child of destiny born to Israel. He's the lamb surrounded by the 144,000. He's the military conqueror, the king of kings and lord of lords. Christ reigning with the tribulation saints. And he's David's descendant who's coming soon. As the final book of the New Testament canon, notice here what Stefanovich writes. Revelation serves to draw together the themes of the whole Bible. In other words, I believe that the book of Revelation is not just a single book. It's the summation of the scriptures. It brings Genesis to Jude all together as a, as a final revelation as a final word from God. We, we want to understand it as a singular book and the message that it gives us, but we also look into it and see that it completes all of those things begun in the book of Genesis. We see the tree of life appearing again. We see the Jews appearing in the book of Revelation. We see the Christians, the apostles, appearing in the book of Revelation. We have the 12 tribes. We have the 12 apostles, uh, the foundation stones and the gates of the New Jerusalem. <coughs> you know, all of it comes together in the book of the Revelation. So it's the capstone. The Bible's promises, predictions, the covenants are fulfilled. Indeed, they reach their predestined zenith. In Jesus Christ. Pretty good words. Okay, how about Walvard? Okay, let's let's hear what Walvard says. The book of Revelation is in many respects the capstone of futuristic prophecy of the entire Bible, and it gathers in its prophetic scheme the major themes of prophecy which thread their way through the whole volume of Scripture. The fact that the old uh, that the apocalypse is saturated with Old Testament references in itself ties the book to the rest of Scripture and makes it a fitting climactic volume, a terminal for major lines of scriptural revelation. You say, well, as I read the book of Revelation, I'm not necessarily seeing those Old Testament allusions or um, uh, uh, what word am I looking for? Reference? Re uh, references. The New Testament uses the Old Testament. Citations. 
Thank you. I'm not necessarily seeing those citations. Well, there aren't that many citations, but there are oodles and oodles of, of allusions. The, the allusions are hundredfold. You'll see that in the, in the coming slides. <clears throat> in addition to this grand scope, the revelation to John has many intriguing characteristics. Oh boy. So it uses visions, it uses letters. It uses beatitudes. It has hymns. It has pronouncements of judgment. It has pronouncements of woe. It uses silence. That's not on the screen, but it does. It has There's silence in heaven for half an hour. Remember, we read that in chapter 8. It uses numbers. It has explanatory signs. It, there are polarities, and there is parallelism. There are invitations. The book is just a smorgasbord of literary features. Now, when we come to the scriptures, we want to come hungry. And a hungry man sits down at the table, and he doesn't much care how it tastes. He just needs to get something in his stomach, right? Okay, well, let's be fine diners when we sit down at the book of the Revelation to John. Let's enjoy. Let's taste. Let's enjoy the texture. Let's, let's appreciate the color. Let's appreciate the way it's arranged on the plate. Let's appreciate the various courses that come to us. Uh, let's eat and enjoy and be filled. This is a very intriguing part of, of Revelation, that John actually participates. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, sometimes the prophet would participate in various ways. For instance, um, prophets would not only um, foretell, they would also enact their message. <coughs> Ezekiel, for instance, would, uh, was told to lie on his left side for so many days, representing years, and then to lie on his right side for so many days, representing years. So he was enacting the prophetic word of God. John does that as well. So open to chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. <coughs> so John is writing. John says, <clears throat> After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Where is John? He's up there. He's participating in the vision. He's seeing it firsthand. That is so intriguing. Wow. Now, sometimes we do that in our minds, don't we, as we're reading, especially if you're reading a good novel. You kind of become one of the people in the storyline. You track along with the heroine or the, the hero and, and the conflict. And, oh, no, the bad guys are showing up. And, oh, yes. We've got victory or not yet. And, you know, we're kind of moving along through the story and, and, uh, and all of that. 
Now, this is such good stuff. Okay, five. look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 4. Or verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll of judgment or to look into it. How does John respond? I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Brothers and sisters, we need to weep. When the will of God is not being done, we need to weep. When God delivers people, we need to rejoice. Uh, we, we need to read with action. We, we need to get into this. Let's turn to chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel. I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. As, as we participate in the revelation, as we read it, as we hear it, uh, we will taste the sweetness. We will also taste the bitterness. And this book is full of that. There are those high points and there are those low points where a third of the earth is destroyed. A third of the ships, a third of the seas. Um, and it's almost like, like we want to fall to our knees and go, no, God, no. As uh, Amos, I think it's Amos would say, they are so small. They're so vulnerable. You're so mighty. How can you bring that kind of destruction on people? Yeah, this, is, uh, this is what's ahead of us as we study this book. You question, uh, why would he do that? All you have to do is look around. My God, why has he waited? <laughs> yes. Right, yes. and you think to yourself, how much worse is it going to get or can it get when you read some yes. of the things that are going on? I mean, our church right now is is working with a, a an organization that escapes me at the moment uh, on the, the sex trafficking issue yes. oh, yeah. here. Yes. Here in Texas, and when you look at the map, it, it boggles my mind to see how it just seems to me like Texas and Florida are like the epicenter of these sex trafficking rings, and it just it, it breaks my heart to think about stuff like that. Yeah, it's done by design because they know these are uh, red bastards, and they're trying to destroy it. Mm -hmm. And our national leaders are not even <laughs> speaking of it. 
Yeah, and you know, wherever the Super Bowl is held, right? A lot of sex trafficking goes yeah. goes on there. Uh, that's our society. Now it's it's who we are. People are going to make money, or they're going to indulge themselves immorally. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, look at look at his response. So not only does he participate, but look at the way he responds. So back in chapter one. He's seen the vision of Christ, and and then he says, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When was the last time you did that? When you had a clear vision of Christ, and you said, oh no, no, I can't, I can't, I cannot be in his presence. When, when was the last time you did that? We ought to be doing that. As we read the scriptures, um, it, we ought to enter into it like John is entering into it. We ought to respond the way he responds. Look at chapter 17. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Whoop, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Whoop, okay, that's not the right verse. Okay, that's an intriguing verse, but th- we're not going to... Uh, oh, no, verse uh, at the end of that. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Hmm, mm-hmm. Look at 1910. More familiar with <clears throat> this verse. I wrote on this verse. 200 and some pages. Um... Then I fell down at his feet, that is, the feet of the angel, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Look at chapter 22 and verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down. He didn't learn to to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And, you know, again, good people, we may find ourselves responding improperly. And we'll need to be corrected. But respond. Let's respond uh, to what we read. Let's respond to the revelation that's being given to us. Okay, comment or a question? You think that's what it means when it says, blessed is he who reads and heeds? Yes. Now, and that would be And that would be the intended response, at least the general. Thank you. So let's go to chapter uh, 1 and verse... Thank you, Kay. And it says that, uh, verse 9 of 22. Uh, uh, yes, yes. So we've got two verses, one at the beginning, one at the end. Blessed, this is 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Yes. So not only do we want to experience the emotion, 
But we also want to heed. We want it to change how we live. But honey, I think that even um, as Chuck spoke today, I don't want my response to be one of fear or dread at the at the throne because you know he has loved us so deeply um i i guess i am getting the feeling from you that there's not just awe but fear and and i'm not sure that that's what a believer would do in, in the throne i i don't want to do that you don't want to be afraid <clears throat> Doesn't our fear of the majesty of God enhance the love that he has for us? How could that great God love me? But that's awe. That's awe? Yes. I think it's also fear. If I, you, if you, at least for me, because if you stand at the edge of Niagara Falls, you're in awe of this marble, and then you feel the power of it because you feel it. And that scares me to death. Especially if you're in a boat down below the falls. <laughs> There's stupidity there too. <laughs> you have to pay for that stupidity. In Proverbs, and it says the under, the fear of the Lord is the end So maybe we need to de- define more specifically the kind of fear that you're talking about. Um, we know we're supposed to fear God in the sense of respect, mm-hmm. but maybe we're talking about fear as in we're scared to death. I don't know what we're talking about. So what, what did the Lord Jesus say about fearing God? He said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can consign soul and body to hell. Yeah, if I didn't know Jesus, I, I should be scared to death. <laughs> Literally. But knowing him gives some comfort. It should be that. peace. Peace. Well, Paul says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. Matt, what do you think? Oh, oh, the word fear there means respect, but also means terror. We are to fear God. But also, on us, as his perfect love, cast out fear. So there's almost a dichotomy there that kind of attention, maybe attention is a better word. There's fear, but there's something that brings us but past it, it somehow. Just does like it you cast out the fear of God or the fear of man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As Jim always used to say, Greek being the most specific language, except when it isn't. What word in Greek do they use to... Uh, the word fear. Phobos. It would be phobos. Yeah, phobos. Yes, Glenn? In every language, one word can have more than one meaning. Yes. In English, fear has more than one meaning. Yes. And in Greek, yes. it does too. Yes. I don't know Greek, but I've been told that there's both the idea of reverence or fear mm-hmm. or both mm-hmm. in that word. And sometimes it's translated as fear, and sometimes it's translated as reverence. But there is an aspect of terror. Sometimes the word trembling is translated. So the shake Mm -hmm. 
is, yeah, you can yes. shake for many reasons. In the Revelation, uh, to come back to your comment, in the Revelation, we will see earth dwellers hiding themselves under the rocks and the trees for fear of the coming wrath of the yep. Lamb and of God. We don't, we don't have that kind of fear of coming wrath. In fact, Paul tells us, you know, you're not predestined. You're not destined for wrath. Fred, what were you thinking? Even the pagan peoples of the world, when they created gods, they created things like cobras, lions, things that were things that they could see mm -hmm. uh, that were fearsome. Of course, instead mm -hmm. of worshiping God, they worshiped. The, they feared the things that they could see, not the one whom they should fear, whom they cannot see. Yes. Just in, uh, Daniel. Daniel had the same experience and fell down like a dead man in, in tenth mm -hmm. chapter, and then, mm -hmm. then in twelve it says, uh, "Do not be afraid, Daniel." For the first day. <coughs> That's yes. Repeat what Gene said. I couldn't hear back here. Oh, in Daniel, in Daniel uh, chapter 10, Daniel fell down like a dead man in front of the vision okay. that he had. And then the angel says, do not be afraid, Daniel. And then went on to explain to him what it's all about. Okay, so all of you have just taught all of you about the fear of God. <laughs> Bravo. <coughs> And that is in part what our world lacks. And I think that's in part why we need to preach the coming kingdom. Get ready for the coming kingdom. We don't get ready for the coming kingdom by sinning and doing our own things. We, in getting ready for the coming kingdom, we acknowledge that our allegiance is multiple and we need to make it singular. Um, it, we, it, we cannot be loyal to ourselves and say, God needs to accept us because I'm loyal to me. And God needs to accept me on my terms. No, it's his kingdom. It's his morality. It's his life that he gives to us. How many of us have had an angel <laughs> Yes, we probably have, but not recognized it. Yes, so yes, we ha yeah, how many have had angels stand? And that's a very good point, because John is experiencing things that many people will not, most of us will not. But we can read about it. Okay, great discussion. Let's keep going. The Revelation to John features multiplied quotations. So let's talk about those quotations even allusions to the Old Testament, and even to other New Testament books. And that's, again, why we can say that the book of the Revelation to John is the capstone of all of Scripture, because it has uh, references and it uses wording and allusions and figures of speech from across <coughs> the board, Old Testament, New Testament. Isn't that glorious? Praise God for that. Um, John was a young man when he was called to be a disciple. He was an old man when he wrote, I believe, um, his gospel, his three letters, and when he received the revelation to, uh, to John. So uh, he, he had seen six decades of Christianity. 
and he was familiar. And the angel uh, that informed John was familiar with all of scripture. Of course, God was who used the angel to reveal it all to, to John. Okay, now, if you've got a, a study Bible, you can just look at in your margins and see cross-references. So as you're reading the book of Revelation, watch the margins, and you'll see uh, various verses from the Old Testament um, that are uh, noted in those marginals, uh, in those margins. Um, in a Greek uh, Testament, New Testament, um, at the back of, uh, of my Greek New Testament, <clears throat> put out by Westcott and Hort, or, or even the UBS text, will have a, a whole listing of what they understand to be the citations or quotations, as well as the allusions from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So there are many places. You can go to Bible software and you know uh, just click on the cross-reference tab, and you'll find uh, these popping up so that you're more aware as you read through um, the book. One scholar lists 14 complete quotes in Revelation. And of, of course, there's a subjective count here. Okay, that's what that scholar saw. Other scholars may see fewer or may see more. Um, and this scholar declares that Revelation alludes to every book in the Old Testament except three. Oh, wow. Wow. Hmm. I think, I think the angel and John... And God the Father and Christ all knew the uh, inspired scriptures. <laughs> uh, Bratcher lists 11 quotations. Walbert affirms that 278 out of 404 verses in Revelation contain quotations or allusions to the Old Testament passages. So as you're reading the last book of inspired writ, you're reading... <coughs> parts and pieces of all of inspired writ. Glorious stuff. According to one scholar, the list of New Testament books used by John would include Matthew, Luke, 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and James. Okay. And he was probably familiar with Hebrews and the epistles of John, of course, and Jude. The Revelation to John occupies appropriately then the last place in the New Testament canon. It presents the triumphant Christ active in the final age in the new heaven and earth. The book concludes the meta narrative from Genesis through to the end of, uh, of the Bible. The book utilizes both Old and New Testament books as resources for its composition. Okay, so what? Well, let's talk about the so what. Because the revelation of, uh, to John ends the canon of inspired scriptures, we ought to think both in terms of what and how, what it presents and how it finishes the scriptures. We should find ourselves reading with a heightened heart rate and a frightful wonder. It's it's like you're coming to the second to the last chapter of the book 
and everything's about to be resolved. The conflict is intense. You don't know if you know if if this hero or heroine's going to make it through, but you're hoping and you're wondering, and that's where we are. And then you read it, you read the last chapter, and you say, Wow, what a story. That's what Revelation does for the whole of Scripture. We, we, we finish reading it and we say, okay, the end of the world is going to be some kind of place and some kind of, of uh, event. That's a level of fear, frightful wonder. I like that. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that phrase too. <laughs> so remember how the Israelites were told to eat the Passover meal in Egypt? Remember? Yep. They were told... Have your loins girded, put your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. That's the way we read the scriptures. That's the way we read the revelation. We're about to see all of of the world come to an end. And we want to be ready for it. We want to be spiritually ready. Like I said last week, how's your armor? Do you have your armor on, your spiritual armor? That's what we need for our age. And certainly that's what they will need in the tribulation age. Okay, comment or question? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege of looking at your word. And Lord God, what a rich investment you've given to us in your word. Uh, we are just in awe of everything we've heard about this book. And as we reread it for another time as we study it again. Lord, speak to us. Help us to see the curve. Help us to see the overall message as we appreciate also the detail, as we appreciate the movement, as we appreciate um, the ongoing uh, movie that's being portrayed before us and the way the world will negatively respond to the glorious revelation of your son, uh, the way the Jews will embrace him, the way Gentiles will be converted and follow Christ and accept martyrdom rather than turn and uh, deny him. Um, Lord God, it's, uh, it's so much to take in. And we are just in the early Uh, stages of of appreciating what we are about to read. I pray that uh, this would be our experience, that we read and learn and talk and discuss together in such a way that we are filled with frightful wonder of who Jesus is and how he will finish world history. To your glory, to the recovery of your reputation and glory to the good of mankind providing for its reconciliation for the exercise of your justice we pray this in jesus name amen